before we get into the message today, um, last week, our message was on a, a shift in our attitudes, trying to shift our attitudes. And I was telling you a little bit about a cruise ship. Actually, I was telling you a little bit about Jimmy Buffett and uh, his changes in latitude, changes in attitude. Well, what you see here is during the week, some of those who are actually on a cruise ship, this is not the ship they were on. This one is the Margaritaville, it, it, Margaritaville at sea. And they actually sent me this picture, one of the ports they were at, changes in latitude, changes in attitudes. Now, how many of you would your attitude change if you were on that ship right now? Um, yes, and, and so the kind of the end of us, really it should be our uh, changes in our latitude. When we start thinking heavenly things, and we start thinking more beyond ourselves and more about God, then, then our attitude changes. Today, what I want us to do is I want us to shift into action. Now, if you ever have the opportunity to go, I know that won't make sense, it will in just a couple moments, you're all, look, I see those looks, Don, we were a little bit early on that one, but you can leave it there, um, if you ever have the opportunity, no, no, go ahead, go ahead, Don, go there, if, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, and sometimes I think, going to Israel would be really cool, you know, Jerusalem, and, and seeing where Jesus was, and all the places that Jesus went, you will see all over Jerusalem, a very distinctive cross, it is this cross that is up there, it's called the Jerusalem Cross, it has been associated with Jerusalem ever since the Middle Ages when it was adopted by the Crusaders as the flag of the kingdom of Jerusalem somewhere around 1250 A.D. Some of the symbolism of this here, the Jerusalem cross, is that it represents the five wounds of Jesus. You have the, the two upper smaller ones, which would be those, those wounds in his hands. The lower ones would be the wounds in his feet. And then the pierced side. So you have the five wounds of Jesus. Another one is people would say that it represents the big cross, would represent Jesus. And the four smaller ones are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Others will say that it also represents the four quarters of Jerusalem. See, since the 19th century, the old city of Jerusalem, it's been divided into four quarters. The Jerusalem quarter, the Jewish quarter, wait, wait, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, and the Christian quarter. But for Christians, the Jerusalem cross, it also reminds us that Christianity began there in Jerusalem, and it is supposed to spread to the four corners of the world. The cross reminds us that Christianity began with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus actually told his disciples to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. So today as we continue this series that we're going, to, we're going through on shifts, we need to make a shift in our personal lives and in the life of our church as we follow God's plan. I want us to talk about shifting into action. Because from the very beginning, God's plan was never for the church to stay in just one place. So we're going to look at what God's plan has always been for his people from the very first pages of Scripture. But we're also going to look at why that plan so often gets sidetracked. Why God's plan, we have so much trouble putting God's plan into action. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1. That's where our scripture is found today. 
And Acts, get this, is, is really kind of a volume two of Luke's story of Jesus. Now Luke, he was a Gentile, a non-Jewish writer, who set out to write a complete orderly account of the ministry of Jesus and the activity of the early church. He writes his gospel for a guy by the name of Theophilus, who many scholars believe was a wealthy Gentile who actually commissioned Luke's biography and may have funded and helped to pay for all of Luke's work and his traveling and everything. The gospel of Luke, it ends with the resurrection of Jesus. At the end of Luke, Jesus actually gives some final instructions to his disciples. He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in my name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now just, just imagine, just pretend for a moment that, that the, the Bible, the New Testament is in a different order. And, and you go from Luke, and instead of having John there, you go straight from Luke into the book of Acts. You just turn the page. Luke, we just finished what we just read from Luke, and you're at the next thing. And I'm going to ask if you would, please, those who are able, to stand. And we're going to read through Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thank you. You may be seated, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. And so now twice, once right there at the very end of Luke and now at the beginning of Acts, Jesus gives some very clear instructions to his disciples. Beginning there in Jerusalem, They are to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Remember the the Jerusalem cross? He tells them to go back to the city. And they're supposed to wait there for the power from the Holy Spirit. But then, when the Holy Spirit has filled them, their next instruction was to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so the rest of Acts is all about how the message of the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the four corners of the world. And that's why it's called Acts, because it records the Acts or the actions of the apostles. And in some translations, it actually will say Acts of the Apostles. But you know what? You're going to love this. I came across something that I found was kind of interesting, which might actually change the way you, you look at the book of Acts, or at least the way you think about it. 
It was a quote from a guy by the name of Don Richardson. He was a well-known missionary, and he was an author. He passed away in 2018. For 15 years, Don and his wife, they were missionaries, and they worked in Papua New Guinea, living with a tribe of cannibalistic headhunters that were called the Sawi. In his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, which he wrote, Don said, We think that the Acts of the Apostles records the 12 apostles' obedience to the Great Commission. Actually, it records their reluctance to obey it. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe we could better title this The Inactions of the Apostles. See, Richardson, he goes and points out that while Jerusalem was evangelized there on the day of Pentecost, if you know the story, the Holy Spirit came upon them and thousands of people were saved on that one day. But you see, the next several chapters, they have the disciples staying right there in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5 at verse 28, the, the critics of the church, they're actually complaining because the apostles have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. It's not until chapter 8 that we see any sign of the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem. It's not until chapter 11 that we see the Jerusalem church actually beginning to plant a church in Antioch. And when you think about the man who was most responsible for the spread of the gospel, who is it you think of? Paul. And you realize, Paul, he was not even one of the 12 apostles. And so Don Richardson, he points out that by the time you first hear of the gospel of Jesus being preached in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, 25% of the book of Acts is already history. And as far as we know, as, as far as you can read or tell from any of that, it doesn't even sound like they were making any plans to carry out the rest of Jesus' command. They were content being right there in Jerusalem. But why is that? Well, in physics, there is something called the law of inertia. John, do you know what the law of inertia is? You know what? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah it's right there. The law of inertia is what you experience on that black ice. And that is that a body in motion tends to remain in motion, right? Spinning around and doing all that, while a body at rest tends to remain at rest. And that explains why so many of us have a hard time getting back into church you know, after things shut down. And, and churches, even now, are still suffering from the shutdown of the pandemic, which was three years ago. Some, some churches have closed and some are still struggling with it. Do you know that God has been battling inertia since the beginning of time? Throughout Scripture, God often told somebody or a group of somebodies, to go. And just as often as God has said, go, his people have said, no. That's right. Look at the Tower of Babel. It's in Genesis chapter 9. The scripture references are listed at the top of the handout if you have them. They're not in your, in your bulletin, but just there. In Genesis chapter 9, God, he has just finished destroying the earth with the flood. And he's going to start all over again with Noah and his family, kind of taking a mulligan, a second chance, if you will. And he tells them the exact same thing that he told Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Well, they got the fruitful part, but somehow they forgot the fill the earth part. They settled on a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They learned how to make bricks, which was a great big, huge leap forward in technology and civilization. And then in Genesis 11, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Kind of the plan, wasn't it? See, we can call this the self-satisfied no. Sometimes inertia happens or, or doesn't happen because we have worked hard. You know, we've had a real busy week at the office and, and working the things we're doing. And we feel like when the weekend comes or when retirement comes or, or whatever it is, that we just want to kick back a little bit. We want to take it easy. We live out that McDonald's commercial that says, you deserve a break today. And then there's Moses. We call him the self-doubting no. Now, most of you are familiar with the, the story of Moses. He is born, he grows up in Pharaoh's household. He is raised by Pharaoh's daughter while God's people are stuck there in Egypt in slavery. They're in captivity. And Noah, he was 40 years old. Wait, Moses, he was 40 years old when he killed that Egyptian because the Egyptian was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews. Moses, he realizes that he's been figured out. Someone knows what has happened, and so he flees to Midian. He's on the lamb. He's on the run. He's in hiding. He lives there as a shepherd for the next 40 years. 40 years in hiding. Now, 40 years, that is an awful long time for a body to be at rest. You know, a body at rest, it tends to, and you can fill in the blanks if you want, it tends to, to stay at rest, get lazier, put on some weight, all kinds of stuff. But one day, God appears to Moses in this burning bush, and he says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries, and I've come down to deliver them. I'm going to get them out of Egypt and bring them into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And I am sure that Moses says, yes, God, go get them, God. You can save them. You can do this, God. But then God throws Moses a little bit of a curveball, and he says, come, I'm sending you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And you can just imagine the, the wind getting taken out of Moses' sails. He's super excited that God is going to do something but when it comes to using Moses, mm, not so much. And so Moses, he, he starts giving God one excuse after another, all kinds of excuses. Who are you, God? What am I supposed to say when they say, well, which God? What if they don't believe me? But, but God, I have a speech impediment. Question after question, doubt after doubt. Are you strong enough? Am I brave enough? Do I have what it takes? Am I a leader? Can I overcome my past? Can I overcome my weaknesses? And I love that God actually hears Moses through all this. He listens to him. All of Moses' doubts, all of Moses' questions. And he reassures him that through every single one of those and through all of that, God reminds Moses 
that he will be with him. Not only that, he gives Moses a visible demonstration of his power. See this rod? Toss it on the ground and it becomes a stick. And then finally, wait, this rod, you throw it on the ground and it becomes a snake. See, that's good. You all are listening. Hi, yi, yi. And finally, God has had enough. He fires back. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And even all of that, it's still not enough for Moses because Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Send someone else. And so even though God now is frustrated with Moses, he still shows Moses grace. He allows Moses to bring his brother Aaron along with him for moral support. But God didn't let him off the hook. He gave Moses a job to do, and he expected Moses to do it. Now get this. He does the exact same thing with each and every one of us. He has a job for us to do, and he expects for us to do it. You see, there is the self-satisfied no, and there is the self-doubting no. Are you either one of those ringing a bell with you? Can you, can you resonate? Can you re- relate to any of those? Do you find yourself staying put when God says go because either you're too comfortable or you're too insecure? Well, if neither one of those connect with you, then let me introduce you to another character from the Old Testament before we get back to the book of Acts. Let's talk a little bit about Jonah. Jonah, he was a prophet of Israel during the time when Israel was being threatened by the Assyrians. And the capital of Assyria, it is Nineveh. It had a reputation of being probably just about the most wicked, the worst, the meanest place by far as Israel was concerned. And God wanted Jonah to go there. See, God's not ready to write off an entire group of people, and so he says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And so what does Jonah do? Nineveh is about 600 miles to the northeast of Israel. And instead of heading east, Jonah, he starts to head west, southwest. It would be like God telling us, I need you to go up to the Olympic Peninsula. I need you to go up to the northwest corner of Washington. And what do we do? We say, all right, we're headed toward the very tip of Florida. As far away from that place as you can get is that place down there. The very next verse, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Tarshish is about 2,500 miles to the southeast of Israel, complete opposite direction. He couldn't be running any further from God than he was at that moment. But why did Jonah disobey God? It wasn't because he was afraid, and it wasn't because he doubted that God could protect him. It was because Jonah knew that if the Assyrians repented, then God was going to spare them. 
You see, Jonah, he was very comfortable with the idea that God was for Israel and against Assyria. And he was too selfish to consider that God might just be for Assyria as well. And I wonder, I wonder if sometimes we miss God's heart for people because we've already decided that God would never want to save them. Or maybe way deep down inside, we're really okay with not reaching out to people because we like our church just the way it is. And then if we actually go out and we start preaching or, or we start sharing the message with people, people who aren't like us, they don't dress like us, they don't act like us, maybe they don't look like us, they might actually listen to us. And maybe, maybe our biggest fear isn't that they are going to reject us, but maybe they will actually accept the message and hear it. And then we wouldn't know everyone in church anymore, would we? We might have to park a little farther away, or we might have to learn to get along with brothers and sisters, people who, who aren't like us. They might disagree with some of the things we believe doesn't mean they're not saved. I'm afraid that sometimes God says, go. And we respond with a very self-centered no. So you see, I don't want to just single out the apostles in the book of Acts. Because the Bible, it has a long history of God saying go and his people just saying no. So the question is, how do we get out of it? How does... God overcome this whole inertial thing, inertia thing and get a body that is at rest to become a body that is in motion. Well, again, we see a pattern throughout Scripture. Here's the pattern. If, God, if God's people are reluctant to accomplish God's will, then he will often send a crisis to shift them into action. If you go back to the Tower of Babel, when God told the people to fill the earth and they tried to, to stay in one place and to build that tower, it says that God came down, he confused their language so that they were unable to understand one another's speech. Verse 8 actually tells us, So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. Take a look at Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah takes a ship in the exact opposite direction. You know the story. God sends along this huge storm. The sailors, they take Jonah, and they toss him overboard. Jonah, whoa, he gets swallowed by this giant fish. He spends three days in the belly of this fish. He repents while he's there inside the belly of this fish. The fish then goes, whoop, and vomits him up on the shore. God gives Jonah the exact same instructions as he did before. Arise and go into Nineveh, that great city. This time Jonah goes, only now he smells a lot like fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so now, let's circle back to the 12 apostles in the book of Acts. Remember, God's will will be accomplished. He proved it at Babel, he proved it with Moses, he proved it at Jonah, and he proved it in the book of Acts. God got the disciples out of Jerusalem to the four corners of the earth by allowing a great persecution to break out there in Jerusalem. 
But here's the thing, with each and every one of these crises, God used the crisis in order to bring about his plan. Because of the crisis at the Tower of Babel, human beings filled the earth. Because of the crisis in the belly of the fish, the people of Nineveh, they repented and they turned to God. And because of the persecution in Jerusalem, let's look at what happened. In verses 4 and 5, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the message there. And it brings me to a question that maybe many of you have talked about with other people. Maybe you've wrestled with it in your own head. Question that that you may have had discussions on over these past several years. Why does God allow persecution? Why would God allow something like a global pandemic, COVID, to shut down a church, the churches for several months, and then even after that, a limited time of being able to open and, and doing different things? What is God's purpose with this divisive political season that we are heading into? Why is there so much anger and so much hatred? Why are we we fighting each other so much? Is it possible that God wants to use that crisis or any of these crises to shift the church into action? God's purpose for his people, it hasn't changed all the way back since Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I wonder if maybe, just maybe, we needed some kind of catalyst to remind us of that purpose. Maybe like the people of the Tower of Babel, we are too satisfied, or maybe like Moses, we have too much self-doubt. Maybe like Jonah, we're too self-centered. Or like the Jerusalem church in Acts, we have become too self-focused. Maybe this is our time to go and put shelf, no, put self on the shelf. I think Paul had it right at the end of the letter that he wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 15 and verse 17. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. What is your ambition? What is Richmond's ambition? See, I want to have the same answer, at least close to the answer that the Apostle Paul had, and that is to preach the gospel or to share the gospel, to share the message where Christ is not known, reach out to people that I can. Do we somehow need to shift into action? 